This week's guest put himself through law school by performing magic and music shows, mostly for children and some family audiences, but he's also performed for Billy Joel, uh, the Beach Boys, Mayor Giuliani and and Mayor Bloomberg, Uh, but he's also an immigration attorney. Today's guest is David Yakovsky. Welcome, David. Hello, Ben. Nice to to see you. So, David, you're based in New York City. what is what are some of the benefits of being based in a big metropolitan center like that? Well, that's a great question. Uh, you know, New York City, uh, I suppose, is one of the great cities in the world. It's extraordinarily diverse. There's a lot one can do, especially uh, in the uh, warmer months of the year. There's concerts and 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 all kinds of uh, events and street fairs and music and culture. Shakespeare in the park, uh, almost uh, every day in the summer, not at the high level, but you know, these smaller groups that put on their shows. Um, We have lots of outdoor activities. We even have kayaking on the Hudson River. We have bicycling, hiking in Central Park, in Riverside Park, the whole Hudson River from the Statue of Liberty all the way to the George Washington Bridge is now lined with outdoor cafes in the spring and the summer. A lot of the people who work at them are foreign nationals, including Australians, on the J-1 Visitor Exchange Visa. Uh-huh. So you went to Cardozo Law School. What made you choose that law school? Good question. If I remember correctly, during law school, I wasn't sure what to do because I was in my band, yeah. bluegrass band, and I was a poli-sci major and a French major and talked to one of my... Uh, student advisors who was in the political science department and another one in the philosophy department it's good to have a good student advisor i have to say it really helped me and as a result um, i applied to just a few law schools the problem was that i encountered um, something known as mononucleosis and had to go home and was very very sick as one could imagine yeah and only had enough energy to fill out one application. <laughs> and I did, as a result of that uh, application, get into that one school that I applied to. So it was very touch and go. wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Did you know that you wanted to be a lawyer? or And you just weren't sure of the kind of law you wanted to practice? Or you were fairly unsure, period? All my life, I've just had so many interests in science, in biology, in music, in sports, in law, but law in a more dramatic sense, watching those great uh, old TV shows we have in the U.S. that were known as like Perry Mason Mm. and uh, 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 one that I loved as a kid, Divorce Court. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's an interesting one. So what, what made you go into immigration law rather than maybe family? 
Great question, Ben. Um, coming from a family that really uh, tells the story of immigration is probably what uh, made me uh, pursue it. Um, the idea that you can be a lawyer and also help people fulfill their American dream um, is truly something that maybe makes you feel like you're doing a job that is stable, and but it's also good for the world and maybe even good for your soul. Did you start out in immigration or did you start, do, start out doing a different kind of, of law? Oh, no, I was working at a big law firm known as Kelly Dry as a summer uh, worker, mm -hmm. student worker, or was it post? Was it post? I don't remember. But uh, maybe the year after law school? No, I think it was during law school. And I was working on actually a very famous case, and I was put in a room, not a real office. I was put in the Bhopal room. Mm. They were defending Union Carbide in the huge action against them. There was a horrible, horrible tragedy. There was a, a gas leak in Bhopal, India, and many, many, I believe thousands of people perished from that gas leak. And um, I had to work on a little thing called subrogation, which is about insurance companies, very dry stuff. Uh, and we didn't have internet, but one of my jobs was to go to Columbia University because they had the biggest law library, bigger than the law firm. And I had to look at Indian newspapers and see how much does one get if there's a train wreck in India and one loses one's life or one loses an eye. Because the Indian uh, uh, team of lawyers wanted to be compensated in New York dollars and the uh. law firm wanted to negotiate a settlement that would give them much more than they would have received in India, but more equivalent to uh, rupees. So it could be uh, an order of a thousand in terms of a difference. You know, even one dollar would be great compared to in India where you might get 10 cents as opposed to they were asking for millions of dollars for each person as you would get in America. And so you found that work not as interesting or rewarding? I felt bad about it. I mean, it wasn't... Actually, in the end, I thought there probably had been a sabotage. It just didn't make sense uh, that this could have been an accident based on what I read, although I wasn't an expert on chemical engineering. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I uh, was brainwashed by TV shows like The Partridge Family, The Monkees, mm -hmm. uh, and so forth, and, you know, wanted to do a record album. And I was doing shows for kids and all my life, really, since I was 13. And uh, I had that in my blood that I wanted to, you know, get out an album, and I was going to do one for adults, and I was uh, going to these open mics while I was in law school, before and after, and at those open mics, sometimes there were people who weren't known yet. There was one person who used to wait till two in the morning. Her name was Suzanne Vega, and she used to go. Anyway, I decided, okay, I'm already doing kids shows. I'll do a kids album, and so um, I eventually left the, uh, and then I got another job uh, temporarily. I wanted a part-time job at a very boring uh, place. And so, yeah, I just said, I'm making a living doing these shows. I knew two other students from law school, from Cardozo, who actually did not graduate like myself uh -huh. and continued their shows, their <laughs> magic shows. To this day, they're still performing. Wow. I think one of them regrets that he didn't finish law school. I think it's good to have a backup plan in life.
and uh, one may have dreams of success in the arts or music or whatever, but um, it may not be the uh, most practical thing to rely on a, a dream that's going to uh, make your living. There's a lot of hungry ac- actors and, and musicians, yeah. Yes, sir. So you, you took a break out of the law after law school for, I understand, somewhere between four and five years, and, and you produced some children's albums and, and all that kind of stuff. What drew you back to the practice of law? Great question, Ben. Um, you know, when you're writing songs about magic whales and flying zebras, yeah. and you get a show out of the blue, at a 60,000-seat theater, outdoor Hartford Meadows. And you didn't even know you're going to get such a show because you're used to these little theaters and birthday parties, and you drive up in your Volkswagen hatchback with your magic Labrador, the (laughs) rabbit you rented, your amazing sound system that can let your guitar play 2,000 instruments, which in the 1980s was cool that you could make a guitar pluck a guitar and it sounds like an orchestra that was you know I had pretty state-of-the-art stuff and um, there I was and I'm driving into the Hartford Meadows and I see Tina Turner's trucks pulling out 20 or 30 huge trucks and then I pull in and I see this stage that's the size of an airport and two hours later the kids they've bust in it doesn't look like a a good turnout because there's only 20,000 children there Wow. And adults. And it holds 60. Uh, but uh, after that, I was like, what more can I do? You know, I did I did eight shows yeah. in a week. And the, the shows got progressively less. The last show was about 6,000. But it started at about 20-something. Still a lot. Yeah, still a lot. But then two days later, I was in, you know, uh, Johnny's backyard in New Jersey with 12 kids. With airplanes flying over my head. And that show was more difficult then the 20,000 with the big sound, you know, you're on yeah. the stage, they think you're God. <laughs> when you're in the backyard, you know, who was that guy? Yeah. Uh, but, so I think I got a little performer burnout. Yeah. And decided to start using another part of the brain. Mm. So how did you get started in immigration law? Because I think it's an area of law that's very interesting or appealing to a lot of students because they want to do good. Well, that's a great, another great question. You're on a roll. Um, somehow I, I got connected with Catholic Charities. Mm-hmm. And they had an immigration training seminar to train attorneys in how to represent refugees. In this case, I was... I went in, I got trained, I met a remarkable fellow named Mark von Furstenberg, or Sternberg, and he was the main uh, guy running the, uh, the uh, political asylum program, which is a free mm-hmm. program for refugees uh, through Catholic Charities. And um, I represented some African refugees, uh, and we won the case. Um, and I did a few more of those. Um, but I also noticed that some of the stories I was being told didn't always... I think people are desperate to be here, so they may exaggerate 
sometimes or even perhaps create. Mm. Uh, and I didn't want to be, uh, I wanted to help people, but of course I wasn't getting paid for it. Mm. And um, uh, there was another fellow who, uh, who actually turned out was making about $100,000 a year in the 80s doing construction because, you know, when they're here, they're given permission to remain in the United States while they're waiting for their hearing, which could be a few years down the road. Right. Sometimes given this permission to work. And uh, I was like, my gosh, this, I'm doing this case for free, and this fellow's uh, making more money by far than I am, you know, doing these magic shows. And uh, then there was a, I did something for volunteer lawyers for the arts, a woman sculptor. And I just worked so hard. Her sculptor at a college campus had been destroyed through a weather event, and she wanted money compensation because she had loaned it to them. Uh-huh. So I was fighting and fighting, and I think I got her, a, you know, I don't remember what it's, $500. She wanted $1,000. But then later, a few months later, she called me and asked me if I could do, if I did real estate, and could I help her close on her $2 million apartment. And I'm like, why am I doing these things for free for people who are, you know... So, Very well uh, off. yeah, and so all of a sudden I got a call from a friend and uh, he said, you know, we have this, uh, he knew I was doing immigration related things and he said, we're bringing in, uh, we're doing a campaign for uh, for uh, Bell or AT&T, Spanish language, and we're bringing in a Venezuelan film director. He's won some awards. Could you do his visa? Hmm. I said, well, actually, for immigration law and law school, my teacher was John and Yoko of the Beatles lawyer. And I learned wow. all about extraordinary ability cases, and I had everything I needed to do in my notes. And then I purchased a book for about $500, and I think I charged $900 for the case. So just, just as a, a quick sidebar uh, for our listeners, extraordinary ability is a, a class of a visa? Indeed. There's actually something that's logical in our hodgepodge of rules that often make no sense. In this case, extraordinary ability makes perfect sense. We want to bring in the best and the brightest. So you have to show that these folks have had significant awards, publications, critical contributions to their industry, Mm. reference letters from top experts attesting to their uh, extraordinary talents and abilities, uh, and anything we even have in the law, comparable evidence that would convince the immigration services in the event that this particular genre does not fit in with our list of items that you need to use to prove extraordinary ability. Could be high salary in Mm. business, Um, could be uh, being uh, in the top, like if it's an athlete and they're rated, you can use the rating to Mm -hmm. show that they're in the top percentile. And so your first... um I guess, private practice immigration case was one of these extraordinary ability cases. Yes, and it's very unusual because at that time there were only a few firms, including the firm representing John Lennon, uh, that were even going near the extraordinary ability cases because they were the most complicated, uh, subjective uh, cases, and it's not always easy to find such clients. Mm. But I started getting them from Venezuela, different people in the film industry. Uh, and you've represented some financial professionals and musicians and actors and athletes as well, right? Absolutely mm. true, yep. So is it is it uh, 
an area of law that requires you to become quite specialised, to focus on certain kinds of visas? Or is it common for immigration lawyers to be fairly broad in their, in their practice? You know, there are many people who are very, very broad in their practice, and there are some that not only practice immigration law, they practice criminal law, they practice, uh, they do litigation. Uh, for me personally, having already been focused on music and magic, it was already a miracle that I was doing any law. So yeah. I felt that I really should focus and, you know, buckle down on one area, and that was uh, business immigration law and arts and entertainment immigration law, because, you know, when you go to the immigration conference if you if you go to a law school and then you graduate and you become a lawyer you can go to these law conferences through the American Immigration Lawyers Association and they have the syllabus for their four-day event and they have two tracks they have the criminal defense political asylum mm. DACA kind of tracks and on the other side they have the representing multinational corporations who want to bring employees to the United States and all. There are different kinds of visas for investors, for multinational executive transfers, for uh, people with uh, professional special professional uh, 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 skills in an occupations that are considered professions. That's the famous one you've mm-hmm. heard of. It's known as the H-1B. It's in the news sometimes. And special version of that for... Australians only, Ben. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. So it sounds like there's this division, roughly speaking, into these two streams of immigration law. Uh, you you currently run your own practice. Do you, do you focus on one of those, or do you do a little bit of both streams, or do you focus mainly on the business side of it? Uh, mainly right now it's a business right. and entertainment. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Occasionally it, there's an overlap some of my entertainers and business people have had minor infractions with law. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it's an accidental uh, uh, criminally related event, such as even uh, maybe driving after having a few beers, mm-hmm. uh, they should still be able to get their visa. But if it's something that has mens rea, that has that intent, to do harm, then they're less likely, even if they're the most talented person in the world and won every award, if they um, engaged in behavior that was purposeful and criminal, uh, that could be considered a crime of moral turpitude. And uh, there's a whole huge, you know, volumes about moral turpitude and what that constitutes. But generally, if it's an accident, even an accidental killing, you wouldn't have moral turpitude. Whereas if you purposely stole some items in a store, shoplifting, that could be moral turpitude. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're currently running your own practice. Tell us about some of the challenges of, of, of doing that, rather than working for, working for a firm. What are some of the pros and cons? Well, you know, when I first started, I, I, uh, it, was, it was tougher than today with the Internet because people said, where's your law library? And I actually had a loft bed underneath my loft bed in an apartment in New York City. I had one phone, which was, thanks for calling, Magical David. <laughs> Please leave the name. Da, da, da. And on the other answering machine, it said, you have reached the law office of David Yurkovsky. 
please leave a message and we will get back to you as soon as possible. So these sometimes went off at the same time, which is even more. Uh, now, what did I use for immigration? I bought a book for 500 bucks that was just, you know, and the funny thing was that book was written uh, by a fellow named Fragaman, which runs the biggest law firm for immigration in America. Hmm. And what's even funnier is when I was 17 or 18, I did a magic show for Fragaman's kid's birthday party. And he said, if you know, you become a lawyer one day, talk to me. And I never actually did talk to him. But it's just very funny that his book, years after I did a magic show for his child, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, maybe almost a thousand pages. And I read through it, you know, a few times. And then through the American Immigration Lawyers Association, a new advance had come out known as the CD-ROM. And I could put that CD into my computer and I had access to every law library. Yeah. But the challenge at the time was that you needed immigration forms. And they had a shortage of immigration forms. You had to write to Washington and ask them to send you the forms for the H-1B visa and they would send you like three. And you had to use their original forms. You couldn't use copies. Oh, gosh. So, and then you could go down to immigration in, in midtown Manhattan, downtown Manhattan in the 26 Federal Plaza. That's where they uh, do the interviews for marriage cases. We do those too at my firm, uh, which, you know, occasionally it's not that we're actively pursuing uh, with a sign, get married and get your green card, but sometimes my clients get married. And yeah. So we do that for them. But uh, you go down to that building and they're like, sorry, we ran out of forms. So initially, then, then with the magic of computers, a company came along. Uh, was called Immigration Professional. Hmm. And for a few hundred dollars, I was able to get all the forms through a computer program. And I remember speaking to a couple of lawyers I met at conferences, and I told them I was using that program. They're like, you can't do that. You have to use immigration's form. I'm like, well, they're accepting the computer-generated forms now. So somehow I was at the head of the uh, technology, uh, even though there I was initially practicing out of my apartment. Which made, I'm sure, the volume a lot easier to, to, to ramp up. Absolutely. Yeah. And then eventually uh, I started hiring uh, uh, college students uh, to help, uh, some from Columbian Barnard College, because mm-hmm. I knew they were in the neighborhood and I wanted people who could write well. Uh, and just because someone goes to law school, it doesn't mean they can write well. Yeah. That's a theme that's come up in previous episodes is the importance of being able to, to write well as, as part of practicing law. What... What are some of the things that you would say you particularly enjoy about the practice of law? And then on the flip side, what are some of the things that you perhaps find a little frustrating? Well, especially with immigration law, it's not like transactional law where you're dealing with documents and representing uh, people that aren't people, a.k.a. corporations, you are representing people. There is meaning. There's meaning in your life. Uh, on the other hand, if you were just representing corporations, there would be no. The corporation doesn't call you and say, you know, I really need this visa because my wife uh, is pregnant and uh, I need to support her. And then we also happen to have three other children, and we have a mortgage and you know, uh, such and such happened and this happened in my life, all of a sudden now you're not just uh, doing legal work, you're giving people um, counseling, which is why I guess sometimes instead of attorney at law, 
uh, they're also known as counselors yeah. at law. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes you have to be uh, kind of a compassionate person, but at the same time, you have to be able to keep your distance and remember that this is a, a legal relationship between an attorney and a client. Mm. And initially, after being someone who did service industry, magic, you know, entertainment for people, perhaps I got too uh, uh, meant emotionally connected to the client. So mm. if you're an attorney, you have to maintain your composure and uh, your business acumen. Um, I would say, imagine it's even tougher for doctors when yeah. they have to tell someone about a diagnosis that may not be uh, a good diagnosis for the future of their life. So those boundaries help you be more objective and, and give the client ultimately, I guess, what they're wanting is you know, legal advice. Absolutely, yeah. Ben. Um, and uh, you can. it's nice to be able to, uh, to, to talk to people uh, and uh, help them with their lives but sometimes they will present themselves on the phone that this visa you know like i say there was one australian chap uh, a few months ago i mean he had his two million dollar mortgage and he had just put it in the pool i mean it doesn't sound very uh sad right but yeah. it was like if i don't get this you know i'm gonna have to sell the house my kids because he had already been in the u.s uh, through another mechanism and mm-hmm. was changing jobs and wanted to go off on his own and find a way to sort of work for himself through mm. a company, which is not always the r- typical way. Usually there is already an existing company. Mm. So we, you know, um, trying to come up with creative solutions for entrepreneurs. But then their whole life depends on the success. Otherwise, they may have to go all the way back, God forbid, to Australia. Well, I think I think it's one of those areas of law where there is real skin in the game in the sense that if you lose a civil suit, most of the time, the ultimate consequence is money. Whereas in an immigration case, your client can face outcomes that can change the entire direction of their life should they have to leave. And so it sounds like there's there's a lot of scope for meaning and purpose in this kind of work, even though you might be representing people who at first glance don't look like the kind of clients that we often think of when we think of immigration law. That's, that's true. Um, what's even funnier is uh, initially when I first started practicing and I got, got people their first green cards, uh, a few months later I got a phone call, David, Mr. Yurkovsky, can you please tell me how can we give up the green card? We want to go back to England. We decided we want our, to have our children there. And uh, we don't want to pay the U.S. taxes. Taxes, yeah. And that's kind of funny. So the opposite happens. Sometimes you get them everything they want, and then they change their mind, and they actually, you know, they miss their family, and they want to go back home. And you help you do that kind of work as well. It's, there's not much to yeah. it, but uh, it's kind of ironic. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you find frustrating about the work? And not necessarily about um, immigration, but that could be the case, but just the practice of law and, and particularly running your own practice. What are some of the things that are perhaps frustrating? Well, it's not just running your own practice doesn't bother me because I, I have freedom that at a big firm I wouldn't have. I can mm. I can work anytime I want and I can go play outside if I want to be in the nature for a few hours and I yeah. don't have to be you know pretending to work at a, at a firm or even uh, you can wear well these days people wear whatever they want but in the old days they all got dressed up quite 
quite spectacular to me. But um, um, I would say uh, um, a frustration would just be with bureaucracy. And it, it actually doesn't necessarily reflect who is uh, in charge of the Department of State uh, or who is president of the United States. I think with the advent of computers, they didn't change the forms and the the requirements as much because they didn't, you know, it's a lot of work to print up new stuff. Well, now they can do everything on the computer. So they have, you know, in the last five years to 10 years, a two-page form has turned into a 25-page form. Uh, we, have ex we have a lot of new hires with the U.S. Immigration Services. And let's just say they're not up to the caliber of the examiners that I think we had 10, 15, 20 years ago. And they're allowed to issue denials and or requests for evidence that could be ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous waste of time uh, asking us to answer all these myriads of questions. Um, now this always went on. I remember one case they wanted to prove there was a real office and they wanted a schematic map of Manhattan showing that it was a commercial address. Now, had this been a rural case, they, they don't like people working out of someone's home, even though there's really nothing in the law that says you can't. Mm. They want to see a real office. Well, this guy was working in the Viacom building, one of the premier commercial spaces in the world. So we just went to Google Earth and took some nice videos, uh, photos, and uh, said, Dear immigration officer, uh, the Viacom building is one of the most famous commercial buildings in all the world. Um, and here are some nice photos for you. Uh, please prove our case. It is indeed a commercial building. So, I mean, it that's is. That's an easy one. Yeah. It's, it's definitely an area that sounds like paperwork and attention to detail are front and center. More than, more than ever. And the problem is you're, you're not dealing with professionals. You're dealing with sometimes amateurs. I'm not even sure if these immigration examiners who have all the power to decide someone's fate, I don't know if even they have a college degree or what. And look, there's plenty of brilliant people who don't have college degrees. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, Luckily, you can uh, file again in immigration. So if a case is denied, you can send it in again. And the rules state that the same officer cannot look at it. So you get another... I've heard about you know lawyers uh, discussing uh, immigration attorneys that they sent in almost the same paperwork four or five times until an officer approved it. Yeah. That's very interesting. Would you mind perhaps walking us through uh, an example of a case that you've handled, say from beginning through to the through the end, in terms of perhaps some of the issues that came up, the kind of work that you were required to do, and 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 how that resolved, and maybe if you could walk us through one of those. All right, now I'll just tell you also briefly about some cases we have pending right now. We have uh, standard business cases uh, for business professionals and mm -hmm. business categories. Uh, in case your students are interested, those are H-1B, E-3, E-2, L-1. But we also have quite a few cases in the extraordinary ability category, uh, including a horse jumper from Argentina, a Filipino pool player, by the way, some of the best pool players in the world, a fashion model 
um, a film producer, uh, two guitarists, among others. And some of these are extensions. But even in the case of the extension, for the extraordinary ability, we have, let's say, a few hundred pages about their extraordinary ability. In the old days, a few years ago, we could, for an extension, just say, get a letter from the employer, so-and-so has already been proven to be extraordinary, please give them a one-year extension. Mm -hmm. And that's what it says in the law, you need a letter from the employer. Well, the Immigration Service under the current administration, although it's been coming more and more like that, formally put out a memo. Examiners do not have to trust the first decision. They can ask for new evidence and re-adjudicate the case since they're not the same person who decided it. So now we have to send in the entire history of everything that happened, in addition to the request for the extension. Uh, so what could have been 20 pages is now back to 500 pages, plus it has to be in duplicate. Um, so, uh, uh, but, uh, so running through a case, someone calls me up and says, Hi, um, I'm from... Uh, well, let's say Australia, since yeah, that's okay. a pretty, pretty that. nice country, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, it's amazing. I don't know why people leave Australia. Um, but um, anyways, um, so uh, I asked them to see a copy of their resume. And I say, what is it you wish to do? What's your goal? What's your short-term goal? What's your long-term goal? Is it just you? Or are there also family members? Mm. And then we have a discussion, which we schedule usually through phone or Skype. And what the beautiful thing is they can be anywhere in the world. Yeah. Uh, they don't need to be in person, in fact. That well, the nature of your work is that they usually are in other parts of the world. Yes, yeah. that's true. A lot of times, although sometimes they're in the U.S. already for yeah. some other reason. Uh, and uh, you have to go through the facts and see what is their goal, short and long term, as I said. And then you have to see... What category best fits? Now, if they have an existing U.S. employer, that's easy. It becomes uh, more challenging if they don't have an employer and they're an entrepreneur. Yeah. Because immigration regulations and the history of it really requires that you have a U.S. employer sponsor. And that's where we get into some gray areas. What if you create a brand new corporation and this person also owns the corporation? But the corporation is employing them. Are they, uh, are they employed mm. uh, by an independent employer? What if there's an independent board of directors that has the power to hire and fire this person, even though he or she owns the company? Uh, and so those are the fun cases that I've been working on. And uh, you got to think a little from, creatively. Yes, yeah. from start to finish. Uh, the easy ones, you know, if you have a client like Microsoft or Amazon, they're bringing in, you know, a thousand, two thousand, ten thousand computer-related uh, software engineering professions that are absolutely needed, mm. and apparently there really is a shortage of those occupations in America. So we really need those people, and these, you know, those that would be easy if you represent a big corporation. It it should be easy because it's like cookie cutter. Mm. You're getting the same thing over and over again. You hire your staff, and then you can be the the typical lawyer on TV, and you're out playing golf, I guess, while the staff are yeah. 
are putting out this factory of similar cases over and over again. We don't get too many of those, although that would be uh, make life easy. What, what advice would you have for people who are either in law school now or are planning to go to law school because they want to practice immigration law? Immigration law or any kind of law, because of the computer, because of the internet, you have an opportunity, I think, that's much wider in scope than it was in previous history where you literally needed to be at a big firm because you couldn't get access to the books, you couldn't get access to the cases, uh, you needed to be trained uh, under the thumb, under the wing of a senior attorney who you know you followed. I mean, I basically figured out most of it myself just by reading books and there were some mentors that I was able to call from the American Immigration Lawyers Association Mm. so I'd say if you want to become a young immigration lawyer join the American Immigration Lawyers Association um, and find a mentor find some mentors absolutely Ben and uh, you know put your heart and soul into it Um, but like I say you don't you know I'd say even in litigation now I remember uh, interviewing with two guys, uh, and they said we're beating. Two of us are beating some of the biggest firms in America, and, and they're doing it because they have a computer too, yeah. and they have a printer also. And maybe you know these two guys. Was it Abraham Lincoln who said uh, the smartest person in the room when Abraham Lincoln is sitting with you know twenty other people, is after all the other people. You know the the best decision you could make is. When all the other people leave and, you know, sometimes a smaller number is more productive than a bureaucratic big firm law organization. And technology has leveled the, the playing field significantly. Yes, yeah. yes. So I think people have more opportunity today than in history. Do you think it's important that students get some kind of work experience or find internships to make some of those connections? Um, absolutely. Um, and again, um, one, one could try different things. I also worked as an intern for the Corporation Council of New York, uh, and this involved uh, people who were suing New York City and had to take a visit to a prison, to a Rikers Island, a maximum security prison. A, a person who was unfortunately in prison, in jail, was suing the city, claiming he had been hit by some prison guards and uh, for millions of dollars. And uh, so there I was in Rikers Island, you know, in, in a prison, uh, working uh, as a volunteer. The problem with some of these volunteer positions, you know, these free paid internships, in my opinion, it's kind of disgusting, you know, to, to do. I would never ask anyone to do anything for free for me. I remember at the time I was a young a law student and I didn't have an, barely had enough money to pay my subway fare uh, and was eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and making yeah. spaghetti with butter and uh, for a few months there uh, because I wasn't working at the time and um, at the beginning and uh, just paying tuition and all that and doing occasional magic shows and um, you know I would say try and get paid. You know, and, and plus, it's uh, I think there have been cases that have gone all the way to the Supreme Court that this is akin to involuntary servitude, and yet you have these you know in Washington D.C. and all these big firms, people are working for free. 
Uh, and people ask me when they come from another country, well, I was only working for free. Can I work for free? You know, wink, wink. I don't know if they're getting cash or not. Yeah. But in immigration, you're not allowed to work for free. There's only a few things you can do if you're a visitor from another country that doesn't have permission to work in the United States. You can go to a hospital and you can rock babies. You can go to a homeless shelter and you can help feed, you know, people and make sandwiches. But you cannot, the, the reason we need immigration lawyers is in America is although we live in a, a world with all kinds of amazing things, we have countries and we have borders. And when someone is from another country, you can't go to England and work legally. And I can't, you know, uh, go to Australia and work without permission from the government, from the federal uh, national government of Australia. I need permission to work in Australia. And when someone comes to America, they need permission to work here or they can be deported for working without permission. And of course, that gets into a whole other area because we have millions of jobs uh, that are uh, 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 involved uh, physical labor and mm -hmm. uh, uh, skills that are obviously being doing. But maybe there's 10 or 20 million people in America who are not, not only do they not have permission to work in the United States, but they don't even have permission to be in the United States because they, they snuck in. Do you, do you see that your work is very um, politically, well, tied to the political environment? So when one administration comes in, you notice significant changes, and then when another comes in, you see another raft of changes, or do the wheels turn a little slower? The wheels turn slower. Uh, when Barack Obama came in, I noticed uh, no change for a few years. Mm. And then actually the form started getting longer, and some things became more difficult and a couple of things became <clears throat> a little bit less difficult. But this is just bureaucracy, you know. How different is it when a new governor comes in and you have to get your driver's license? It's, they may change a few things. And yes, the, the look, uh, under President Obama, they say that he deported more people than Presidents Clinton and Bush Sr. and Bush Jr. combined. And yet the rhetoric, and, and now I do not believe we are deporting as many people as we were at that time. Mm. They were going after people who were not just ordered deported for the U.S., uh, from the U.S. for working, let's say, without permission, but literally, you know, people who had committed crimes and been convicted and then let out of prison. And they're supposed to be deported after they've been let out of prison. They're supposed to go from prison and then securely to an airport and flown home if they committed a serious crime. Mm. Um, but uh, the politics and the mass media has become so overwhelming, it's hard to know what's happening and what's not happening. And one has to be very careful uh, to assume that, uh, let's say, life is worse for uh, an undocumented person now than it was during President Obama. In some cases, it depends on the person. I mean, psychologically, it's probably more difficult now because there's a lot of rhetoric. But in terms of their life, they may have a bigger house than they did before. Their business may be doing better. You know, a lot of these people have businesses. They have federal tax ID numbers. They own trucks. They own homes. They give birth to U.S. citizens who uh, are going to go to the you know good schools, and some of them go to good colleges. Uh, and uh, they have to, you know, they can't. The problem is if you're undocumented in America, it's 
how can you leave? It's tougher to leave now. Let's say 20 years ago, they could go in and out. The border was looser. They could make a lot of money in America and then send it back to America, Mexico, bring it back to whatever country they're from south of the border, let's say. And uh, it was easy to get back in. I remember meeting a deli worker and uh, who, who used to make sandwiches at a local deli in New York. I said, you were gone for a while. Where were you? He said, oh, I went back to Mexico for a while, and then I came back in. And I was like, well, how did you get back in? He said, oh, through the tunnel. That was like 20 years ago, through the tunnel. Uh, so now, um, in a way, they're more trapped than they were before. Uh, but that, that's been the last 10 years, I'd say, that they've the border has become uh, tighter. And that's also because of technology uh, that exists now that didn't used to exist. Mm. And, and the politics. Um, what else? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think uh, I think that's been very helpful. You've given us a, an insight into the fact that immigration is a pretty broad spectrum or a broad area of law, and there's plenty of niches within within the area itself. Uh, certainly, it sounds like the skill set is heavy on detail. I would add one more thing. Yeah, uh, I used to be able to help people who were undocumented. Up until September eleventh, two thousand and one, we had a law under Ronald Reagan that allowed people to get amnesty, to not amnesty, but was kind of like an amnesty. They could basically say, here I am, I entered illegally, sorry about that, I didn't have permission to come in, I snuck in, climbed in, parachuted in, however they came in, and um, I am going to pay a thousand dollar fine, and now I have an employer who's willing to sponsor me for a green card. Uh. And they could get in line with everybody else. And after September 11th, that rule, uh, which was created during the Reagan administration, uh, negotiated with Reagan, I think, and Tip O'Neill, a Democratic senator uh, back then. Um, over time, it was extended many times. It was extended by Bill Clinton twice. It was extended by uh, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. It was extended by George... Well, it was about to be extended under George W. Bush, and then September 11th happened, and Congress never extended it. And to this day, we're stuck in this quagmire where there is no mechanism. There's millions of people here in America and of course, the immigration lawyers would love, as a business, as a business matter, for them to uh, bring back what's known as 245I adjusting status, even after entering the country uh, surreptitiously uh, by paying a fine, and then being able to uh, find someone who can who can make them legal in America, so they uh, are not sort of in this sort of second class situation compared to other Americans, which may be a thousand times better than what they left at home, but still in America, it's, I don't think it's healthy for our country to have 10 or 20 million people who are sort of, you know, can't get insurance for their automobile uh, and who are, you know, have children who are United States citizens. So hopefully, uh, one of these days, they're going to uh, bring back something like 245I, adjusting status to United States permanent resident, which is a green card, for those who uh, may have been, uh, 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 who came to the country without permission, but kind of, you would say, economic refugees, so to mm. speak, who came here to work, to work their tails off to create a better life for their children. Yeah. Well, David, thank you so much for your time. Uh, for our listeners, if you've got further questions about the area of immigration law, please send those directly to prelaw at baylor.edu and we will join you again next week. Thank Thanks, you. David. Thank you, Ben. That was fun. Mm-hmm.